Welcome to Inspiring Women with Lori McGraw. I am your host, Lori McGraw. I have spent the past 30 years in leadership, and over the years, I've come to learn one thing. Women need women, and not just any women, but inspiring women. Tune in every week to hear from women at the pinnacle of their careers and from others who are just starting out. Episodes can be found at inspiringwomen.show or subscribe on your favorite podcast app. Thanks for listening, and I hope you will be inspired. This is Inspiring Women, and I am Lori McGraw. Today, I am speaking with Dr. Kimberly McKay. She is the Clinical Vice President of the OBGYN Service Line at Averna Health, which is an integrated health system based in Sioux Falls, South Dakota. Dr. McKay is a practicing OBGYN physician. She's dedicated her career to improving the state of maternal health. And earlier this year, she joined Paragon, uh, which is a perinatal software solutions company um, as a physician consultant. And Dr. McKay, thank you for being on Inspiring Women. Thank you for having me. Well, let's get started. I always start inspiring women by just asking, what are you doing right now? What is your day-to-day as both a practicing physician, as a leader of a service line, as a physician consultant to an innovative software solutions company? Um, Well, what I'm doing right now is I'm now actually the chief medical officer for Perigen and as well as the clinical vice president um, of Avera Health. Congratulations. Congratulations. Thank you. I know it's both of my bosses have been just phenomenal about working with me because I, you know, I have done, I've done a ton of work in the Avera Health system, have more work to do, but certainly have um, a great desire to work with software companies like Perigen who help the people work smarter because um, medical error is still very real. And these are kind of the kinds of things that I think help with that. And the other thing I'm doing right now is that Avera was just awarded um, a HRSA grant for a million dollars a year for the next four years to address maternal health. And that's called an Our Moms grant. It is, um, we've tried it a couple, for it a couple times and finally got, this is the big one. So, um, you know, the next five to seven years of my career are really um, going to be set around the work I'm doing with these two two entities. Well, that is great. And I want to talk about sort of, you know, like what is possible um, in terms of improvement, because um, the state of maternal health, you know, today is certainly not where it should be and actually going in the wrong direction from just the recent, you know, announcement from the CDC about 80% of maternal deaths, uh, maternal health deaths being preventable, pregnancy related deaths. So I want to talk about the state of play there. Um, But before we do, Kim, can we just go into a little bit of your background? So um, you, you came into medicine. Why did you want to be a physician? And why did you, you know, turn to maternal health as your area of expertise and focus? I had a bit of a, a winding journey. Um, I'm from a little town called Belfouche, South Dakota. Um, it's a ranching community on the western side of the state. Um, and I was one of the you know, this was back in the 80s and 90s, I was one of the smart girls um, in the class. And, you know, at the time, women were really going into like teaching. um, And I knew I did not want to do that. And I, you know, my parents both were teachers. um, 
I wanted to do something that was um, both financially kind of stable. Um, you know, back in the eighties during the Reagan era, you know, we went, we didn't have a lot extra <laughs> laying around. I remember, you know, helping my mom deliver bills, um, just by hand. Cause we didn't really afford the stamps. I mean, we had enough, like everybody was kind of in the same position, but, you know, I just thought, you know, what can I do that is a little bit better than teachers? Like it's a steady financial income, but also is really, um, where I can be smart. And that really was medicine. Um, obviously there's so much more than that now, but, um, when I was, I think an eighth grader, um, I won the state science fair contest, um, to do with chickens. Um, and we can talk about that later, but that really started this sort of, um, you know, interest in real, uh, real, like, I just love science and I love the research and, um, was able to, you know, get scholarships based on that to the University of South Dakota um, and knowing that I wanted to go into medical school. And at the time, medical school was, you know, as a woman, you had to be perfect. Like you couldn't, you know, you had to have a 4.0 and your MCAT scores had to be stellar and you had to have the research and be well-rounded. And, um, and there weren't very many of those opportunities um, in particular for research at the time and in and in particular for um uh for women so I kind of had to you know find those opportunities for myself ended up getting into medical school and then in medical school I was pretty sure I was going to be a pediatrician and it took me about four days on the pediatric wards to be like I this is not my deal <laughs> <laughs> it's not because kids don't talk and parents are you know, intense. And so, um, but I ended up, um, having a mentor, which I know you've spoken about before, um, how important it is to have mentors. And it happened to be, um, a man, uh, Dr. Burnett, who had delivered my little brother, as it turned out, um, way back in the day. And he pulled me aside and he said, listen, you're really good. He was an obstetrician, great surgeon. He goes, you know, you're really good at surgery. And you're really good with this patient population. And I think you need to go into this. And so, and that was maybe two weeks into my rotation. And that's when I and really had, had so encouraging he, yeah. those words of, of um, just pointing out when you're working so hard at trying to figure out sort of your career journey, your profession yeah. and what, you know, <laughs> that, well, you, that you were uh, the, the intense parents and the non-talking kids sort of like turned you off when you just started no. <laughs> to no. hear that you're great at something must have felt terrific well and it took me by surprise because again at the time surgeons any surgical subspecialty was men and even though mine was the first medical school class that had women in it surgical subspecialties by and large were men and so um you know you it was just for, to have somebody recognize, he's like, you've got really good hands for surgery. And, and any surgeon who listens to this will know what you need. When you see someone who can see how to handle tissue, who's just intuitive in the OR, that's a really special skill set. And to have this, you know, 65-year-old um, renowned surgeon for the area sort of say, listen, you're really good. That was, I was like, oh, wow. And so, from then on, I paid attention to those surgical sub subspecialties and then ultimately settled on obstetrics because it was a healthy population. Um, it's a really interesting 
field. Um, and it's a very practical field. You know, I'm, I'm pretty smart, but I, my smartness is more in practicality and common sense, um, versus the real cerebral work around say like rheumatology. Um, I'm an identical twin and my, my identical twin is an internal medicine hospitalist kind of physician now working for Google health as it turns oh, wow. out. Yeah. So she and I have had kind of these parallel, um, journeys, but she's, you know, she's just much more intellectual than I am. Um, so anyway, did residency um, down at the University of Kansas in Wichita, um, lots of babies, lots of bread and butter stuff. Um, and I didn't have any thought of, you know, maternal health, but during my time in residency, I was, I went through a lawsuit and spent the last nine weeks of my medical school in, or in residency going to trial for nine weeks. and which was traumatic. And the whole time I was sitting there, I was like, how do I keep, how, how do you prevent this from happening? Not just like the outcome, but, you know, it, it was such a, a, a place of like, you know, poor communication and medical error potentially. And I don't remember all the particulars of the case, but really where I started was in patient safety and helping teams, like, how do you do this work better and communicate better so that patients understand that no matter what's happening in the context of their labor, if there's a bad outcome, how do you help patients understand that you did everything that you could? Yeah, well, the whole area of patient safety and certainly, um, you know, for physicians, malpractice as uh, an expense and also so that, you know, we're in a, uh, a, a state, a, a state where just sort of, um, you know, lots of lawyers involved in medicine, lots of um, lawsuits and physicians that I speak with, the idea of being, not the idea, but the, it happens, um, you get sued, you have to deal with it. And it is tremendous. Um, and in the specialty of OBGYN, you know, the rates are even higher in terms of those lawsuits. Um, and it makes sense just in terms of, again, practically why that would be just given the state of play um, with pregnancy related deaths and incidents um, of that. So Kim, just moving to let's, let's talk about maternal health, because, um, you know, you run the, you run the service line of OBGYN at, at Avera. And um, so you've uh, really been focusing there for a long time time now. What is the state of play? I mentioned the new CDC information of 80%, over 80% of pregnancy-related deaths are preventable, but the United States has not a good track record, amazingly, um, for mothers, for giving birth. So what is the state of play for maternal health? So it, it can be different everywhere, but in general, there's, there's um, preventable death within the four walls of the hospital that have to do with hypertension and, and hemorrhage, those actually aren't as high as you would think they were. Um, and then there's this, um, you know, the first seven days um, after a patient dies or after a patient leaves the hospital, um, those tend to be cardiac events. And then there's this whole slug of stuff that has everything to do with mental health. Mm -hmm. And has to do with what I think are like gaps in service. So, you know, about 40, depending on where you are, 40 to 50% of births are covered by state Medicaid. Many times state Medicaid ends at six weeks postpartum. 
And so any of these comorbid conditions like hypertension, diabetes, mental health, substance use, um, any of those things that co-occurred during the pregnancy, they can no longer be addressed after six weeks. We've, we've seen a number of states um, make policy changes and start to cover those kinds of, you know, cover Medicaid for um, moms up to a year postpartum. But there are plenty of other states that have not, South Dakota being one of them. Um, and so, again, the gaps really are um, not around the pregnancy itself, but around the comorbid conditions that occur with them. Okay, um, but so did yeah. you say did you say that forty percent of pregnancies or or births are covered by Medicaid? That's the that's the coverage um, at forty percent. Mm -hmm. huh. That's a lot. That that's a lot. But but so these issues, I mean, certainly globally, um, you know, the world has babies. So why is the United States so particularly bad? If we look at you know progressive countries, um, the United States is actually you know at the very low end of the scale in terms of you know the health of mothers and and um, healthy babies. Why is it so particularly difficult here in the United States? So I think a couple of reasons. I think in particular around preventable things like mental health. So when we talk about mental health conditions being a cause of maternal morbidity and mortality, what we're talking about is overdoses. We're talking about um, motor vehicle crashes while you're driving drunk because you couldn't maintain, you didn't have the resources to maintain your sobriety. Um, we're talking about you know, again, really severe depression and those kind of things. Those are conditions that most, um, number one, it's, you know, if you're covered by Medicaid, those are not going to be covered at services once your Medicaid coverage end, ends. Um, in South Dakota, in particular, we have a lot of, when patients access care in our facilities, um, when they're pregnant and shortly after they're pregnant, there are a lot of biases about pregnancy in and of itself, and certainly around race and ethnicity, I think that we see. Um, the state of South Dakota has not released their maternal mortality data yet. I do sit on that committee, and I'm not at liberty to say what the findings are, but um, needless to say, um, but I'll give you an example of just something that we actually see in real life. When a pregnant patient comes in, postpartum um, and is tachycardic. Um, there are a number of reasons a pregnant woman could be tachycardic, but there are, are times when people say, you know what, you're just anxious. And the reason you're tachycardic is you're anxious and you need to settle down, you need to calm down. Well, they then they don't do the CT scan for the pulmonary embolus and they don't do the EKG and they don't, you know, they don't address maybe the blood pressure that's a little bit elevated and they send a patient home who actually has a, a medical problem. Um, so again, I can speak to South Dakota and my own health system. Um, I would also say that rurality plays a huge role in South Dakota because um, getting access to prenatal care just from, you know, in the first trimester for a number of our patients is difficult, both because of the drive, there may not be a provider. And also if you're signing up for Medicaid, there's kind of this lag in coverage. So that's one thing we need to address within our own state. Um, one of the things that Avera, that I started out doing really from a patient safety standpoint, but really has morphed into this maternal mortality thing, morbidity thing is said to um, all of our 16 delivering facilities is 
how do we provide um, quality care at your facility, even if you don't have all the resources? And what's an evacuation plan if a mom's bleeding? So the Avera Health System has done um, a lot of work around protocols and things like that. We're now participating in the premier health and human services perinatal collaborative set and are looking for lessons learned there. Um, and we know we have some gaps in care in particular around um, substance use disorder and um, depression. And, you know, that's probably going to be our next big project. Um, so that's, you know, it's multifaceted and, and you can get really overwhelmed at all of the, the what's of it. The United States as a whole, I mean, could I knock it down to, yeah, you know, do we need just a single payer system so that we don't have access problems to care? Um, I don't know the answer to that. Medicaid is such a different animal because every state has a different Medicaid kind of service. And at the end of the day, I think we as providers just have to be, you know, aware, again, aware of our own internal biases and aware of where there are gaps in our own health system that we need to sort of figure out how to bring together. Well, this is, you know, it's really helpful to just to hear the collection of issues and, and that really expresses the um, complexity of solving it, whether it's lapse of coverage, you've got payment issues, bias, probably systemic racism is involved in some of that bias. You've got mental health issues, which we know are only um, getting worse. And this is pandemic and substance use and other things um, related. So there were lots of discussion and studies um, in that area. Um, also really helpful to hear about the just, you know, depression and um, other types of uh, multiple disorders that people are dealing with. So with all that probably, you know, overwhelming at times, um, information, what is working? What can be done that you feel it sort of has promise? And I'm sure it's many different things, but where are some of the areas that you're feeling encouraged and really wanting to focus on? Two areas. I think um, the first area being really looking at your community, and that's what our Our Moms grant is about at Avera, is reaching into the communities and understanding the needs. And so having community health workers, the state of South Dakota is um, has um, given a number of grants for community health workers, and they are working, meaning people who understand the community, know the patients, can go drive a patient, bring them to their appointment, sit with their kids in the waiting room, do a social determinants of health, understand that maybe we, you know, the, you know, if the patient's gestational diabetic, um, we need to go to the grocery store and maybe go shopping with them and help them pick some things out or pick some healthy meals. Um, so again, understanding the community and getting the wraparound services like Department of Social Services, like WIC, like um, our care coordination, getting those pieces to, to talk to each other, which sounds stupid in this day and age, but it's actually really hard. And I, I think so many people experience that in terms of the um, the connection points in healthcare. You know, as somebody who has been in um, healthcare for over thirty years on the technology and innovation side, um, when you experience it as uh, just a person in the system or a family member that you're trying to um, support those gaps and a connection point, they're everywhere in the smallest of ways that make such significant differences. 
Well, and I would just tag on to that, that the second solution, just in my opinion, is, okay, we've got all this great technology. Now let's find the levers, right? How do we help the humans? How do we help the humans work smarter, not harder? How do we make these connections more seamless? And, and actually, that's why I work for Perigen, is the way that they aggregate and monitor the data allows me to not have to look so frequently and then flags me for when I need to actually pay really close attention. And I think... EHRs do it um, okay. I think we're learning more and more about how to work with the humans who are doing the job. Um, but, you know, my goal at the end of our Our Moms project is really to help those connections just happen um, kind of automatically. Well, it's so important, I think. I mean, you're a user of technology, and I know that you're a user of the um, system at Perigen as well. Um, it, but for physicians specifically who are experiencing the technology to make those connection points, I say this just, you know, having um, lived it in terms of implementing systems. Maybe Kim, let's talk a little bit more about you as a physician. I um, mean, it's no secret that physicians are significantly more burnt out than other uh, professions um, at that level. And we also know that there is just a tremendous amount of pressure, um, whether it's technology that's uh, getting in the way or uh, just uh, people generally not believing science like they used to, a lot of disinformation <laughs> yes. that's out there. Oh. How are you doing like in terms of just your own sort of like staying, staying energized and committed to medicine, um, just given the state of what's happening with physicians generally? Um, so the COVID was rough. Like, I never want to do that again, you know, where I'm, I was terrified for my kids standing in a room with patients. And one of the things that was really kind of a bummer is that people really rallied around, okay, if you're a healthcare worker and you're not in an aerosol generating procedure, then you don't have to worry about you know, you don't have to worry about anything. Well, here we are on labor and delivery where all of our patients come in, we see whomever we want. And they said, well, you're, you know, then you're in a room pushing for three hours with the patient and, and people didn't believe that we needed personal protective equipment. And so it was a bit of a moral injury, right? Because now we know, of course, that pushing during labor actually has very high respiratory transmission rates and, you know, sort of having, to go to my administration who, you know, thankfully there, you know, I work for a great administration, but, you know, certainly to see in the data that it just wasn't being supported. And again, I'm like, yeah, go figure it's women's health. Like we're always the, we're the, <laughs> we're not well um, reimbursed. We're, you know, we're always kind of the last thing that everyone thinks of. And as it turns out, we're kind of the canary in the cage for the, we were the canary in the cage for the pandemic because we had patients who were showing up who were really, really sick. And we still had to take care of them. Um, so I think what that did for me is said, okay, when I came through that, I started paying attention to what gives me energy. And what gives me energy is um, helping solve problems for physicians when they're burned out. So again, work workflows, making their, their lives um, easier. Um, I'm also kind of at a point where I get to now start mentoring people and giving them sort of like, okay, providing and creating opportunities for other women, other physicians who want to be in leadership. Um, that gives me a lot of energy. And then the other thing I haven't mentioned is, you know, I was an old mama. I had, my husband and I met late. I put off childbearing until I had my first when I was 38, my second when I was 40. So even though I'm pushing 50, I have this 
nine and an 11 year old who are just a blast. And so I think I get the fear of missing out sometimes on if I don't appear at every meeting or do every little thing, because in, again, in women in leadership, you know, women, we want women in leadership, but then something that can happen is if you don't show up for the meeting, somebody might take your place. Right. So there's always that fear of like, I'm going to be replaced. And I had to just like put that away and say, you know what, I've got a great life. I've got great kids. I've got supportive bosses. Um, and now I'm going to go where I feel energized and feel like I'm helping. Well, it's so awesome to hear uh, that energy come through. And also just that <clears throat> you're taking, you know, just like the difficulty and it was difficult oh. um, the pandemic. And as a physician and a physician leader, um, you know, just hearing your story is hard, hard to hear, but that you're coming out of it with sort of renewed energy. I also really do appreciate the comments on mentoring, encourage all women, you know, to mentor others and that it gives you energy. doesn't sort of take just time um, is wonderful to hear, you know, Kim, there's so many things, um, that I'd love to talk to you about, but just to, because of uh, time here, uh, I'd love to close out on this interview with just, you know, if we look out you know, in the next five to 10 years, what do you think is possible, um, for maternal health in terms of what can be done? Um, I think, I think what's possible is to take all this really good data that we have and really use it to make both policy change and payment reform around maternal health. Um, at the end of the day, and this is a sad fact, um, if you want the answers to maternal health, follow the money. I want you to go look up the reimbursement for a HIP bundle um, on the Medicare side. And then I want you to go look up the reimbursement for um, a complicated length of stay of five days ICU admission for um, maternal health. And at the end of the day, we are investing a lot of resources um, in fixing problems that are to do with, um, you know, you know, obesity and diabetes and those kind of things. Um, and now everybody's the buzzword is population health, right? So population health, manage the health of your population. That starts with a mom and a baby and a pregnancy. You have to start there. That's the ultimate population health strategy. But in our current policy and reimbursement um, world, that's going to be really hard. So, um, in the next five years, I, what's possible? I think. I think. I don't even want to think of it in terms of being possible. It's a must. We must change this, because you know, what we're doing is not sustainable. And um, in five years, I hope to never be in a budget meeting where I hear maternity care is a loss leader. I want the to flip the script and say this is an investment in in our um, in the health of our people. Um, so that's a must do. That does sound like does sound like a must do, and it's really wonderful to hear you know your commitment to using the data to work on changing the policies. Just excellent. So last question, Kim, as we close out, it's been such a great conversation. Any advice for younger women who are just starting out, whether they are thinking about a career in medicine or technology leadership or physician leadership as you're in? Any advice you want to share with listeners? You know, if you get invited to participate in a meeting, just say yes, um, because it's, you know, that's always what I've done is just said yes, even if I don't really think it's going to be a long term thing, my, my greatest opportunities, my greatest professional relationships have come from say, somebody saying, hey, 
I really think this would be a great thing for you to attend to get your thoughts on. Um, so, you know, manage your own internal biases about um, meetings and leadership and those kind of things and, and just say yes. Okay, well, we didn't have time to get to the chicken story. I'm sorry about that, but this has been a great Inspiring Women conversation. I've been speaking with Dr. Kim McKay. And Dr. McKay, thank you so much. Thank you. Thank you for having me on. I so appreciate it. This has been an episode of Inspiring Women with Lori McGraw. Please subscribe, rate, and review. We are produced by Kate Cruz at Executive Podcast Solutions. More episodes can be found on inspiringwomen.show. I am Lori McGraw, and thank you for listening.